everyone. You're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I'm Emily Chang. Today, we are talking about Qualcomm, a company with products that touch the lives of billions of people around the world. It's the biggest maker of chips and smartphones. It's expanding to cars, and it is at the forefront of delivering 5G networks of the future. But if you ask an everyday person what Qualcomm does, you'll probably get a blank look. That said, Qualcomm has been in business headlines almost constantly over the last couple of years. First, because of its bitter dispute with Apple, which is Qualcomm's biggest customer. Then, of course, the White House killed a hostile takeover of Qualcomm by Broadcom, which would have been the largest tech deal in history. And in the midst of a trade war, China effectively killed Qualcomm's takeover of another chipmaker, NXP. All of this has set up tough challenges. Or perhaps you might think of them as new opportunities for Qualcomm's leadership. Joining me on this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Qualcomm CEO Steve Mollenkopf. Steve, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. You made it. For being yeah, I here. Did. I know you have a few things going on. You're in bitter lawsuits with Apple around the world. You fended off a hostile takeover of your company. You had a failed deal uh, this past year. What I miss. Well, you haven't missed anything. I mean, it's been it's been interesting. I, I would say that uh, we are at the center of a lot of key technology, which tends to make us both interesting from a partner point of view. We don't tend to do anything small. It tends you know it tends to be. But it also you know when I look at it, I say um, this year, if anything, proved kind of the importance of the technologies that we work on. So, would you have taken the job if you'd known all the complex situations you'd be dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I, look, if, if I've been at the company for about 24 years, a little bit over 24 years. When I became CEO, it was very clear that, that we knew, what are we going to do next? And uh, so, so, you know, a lot of these things were, were issues that uh, we knew about and we had to deal with. And, you know, we, we're, we're knocking them off the list. And, so you had an inkling it was going to be a hard few years. Yeah, but I think anytime, anytime you're in a technology company, you have to be prepared for ups and downs. And sort of what you tend to do as a CEO is, I think, live your life kind of further out in the future than where you're living. Because you're, bet, you're betting on big technology moves. You're always going to be an optimist. Otherwise, you wouldn't, you wouldn't remain in the, in the industry. Or couldn't. Correct. Uh, and then you just know you have to work through some near-term issues to get to these long-term big changes. So how have you evolved as a leader the last few years? I, I, I know you told the New York Times you're very tolerant of uncertainty. I'm very tolerant of it. I think you have to be. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's been interesting to, to have the ability to, to lead the company through these periods of time. If you look at the public, uh, what people think about what goes on in the company, majority of the company is focused on products, focused on driving 5G. And that tends to be the, uh, the job of the senior group, and certainly the job of the CEO, is to remove the other things so that the majority of the company can work on those things that really drive the long-term value. And you certainly know what that is like. You've been working at Qualcomm for 24 years, started off as an engineer. Yep. Bring me back to the early days and just how different the world was technology-wise then. Yeah, so when, when I started at Qualcomm, uh, this was before digital cellular. People would refer to calling people. If you called somebody, you were calling a place. You were calling a home. Uh, and then we had this belief that not only would you eventually call people, so, you know, the concept of having your own personal number. But we said, hey, you're going to put a computer in your pocket, and that's going to have a tremendous ramifications, not only for cellular, but also for industry. And we participated in every step, when it, whether it was getting digital cellular to come out, getting people to transition to LTE, 
getting the technologies small enough and uh, lower power, low, you know, have the low, low enough power so that you can put a computer in your pocket. Then on top of it, the great thing, the part that we think 5G represents is the ability for these same technologies or the cellular roadmap, the low power processing, the AI at the edge of the internet, the, the connectivity, that's now going to disrupt almost every other industry. And so for us, it's probably the widest funnel that we've had of opportunity uh, in the history of the company. Do you think people don't appreciate the technology that goes into their phones? I think the average consumer doesn't realize how much technology investment is required in order to make these ecosystems. And when I say ecosystem, what I'm referring to is what Qualcomm tends to do is we want to make sure that we're creating the technologies for business, let's say, eight years from now. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're trying to create the technology for a company that hasn't even been born yet. And I think people don't realize how, how early you have to, to work on it. For example, the big investments that we did in 5G, really putting our, our foot on the, on the pedal, uh, were about two or three years ago because we said, yes, this is going to be pretty significant. We want to be the leader, and we invested in that. When will I be able to make a 5G call from my phone? When will my phone be 100 times faster? You'll, you'll get that next year. Actually, uh, in the first half of next year, you'll start to see that rolled out, actually worldwide. Second half, you're going to see it very, uh, very, very prevalent. And, and of course, building into, into uh, 2020. So how big a part of Qualcomm's business will that be? Oh, I think it's, uh, it's a tremendous part of it. I mean, if you look uh, in the future, what we're really about is how do we take the roadmap of cellular? How do we deliver it to cellular at scale on a global basis? And then how do we scale that into new industries? Things like self-driving cars, the, the ability for a car to essentially be connected and to be connected to every other car allows it to see around corners. And that's a big, big change in the way logistics flow will work and in the way that, that, that cities work. Same thing with healthcare. So how will my life be different? How will the world be different? Near term, you're going to get the access to much more bandwidth at a much cheaper cost. And the number of companies that can, that can provide you service at a very, very, um, high rate, meaning equivalent to what you get in your, on your wired internet at home, be available, uh, number one, in your home, but also outside of your home, they're going to go up by a lot. You're going to see some competition probably between the cable companies, the traditional people that provide you wired internet service, and the wireless companies. And they're going to, it's going to really change the landscape a bit. We've reported that uh, China's considering merging the, the second and third largest telecom companies. There's great concern that this will give China an advantage in 5G. Are you concerned about that? I, not so much. I'm not sure I see an east-west competition where I don't think uh, there's going to be a lot of winners. What if it's not China? What if it's South Korea or Japan? You don't see a risk to U.S. competitiveness in this arena. No, I mean, if I look, we, we are partners of choice for all of those launches. By the way, don't forget Europe. Europe is also quite uh, aggressive as well. And so we just see, um, if you're the technology leader, your problem is not, um, are my markets big enough? Your problem is, and this is what Qualcomm's dealing with, is how do I scale this quickly? Because there's so much demand for it. And that's, that's the issue that we're in right now, which is, that's a good problem to have if you're a company. You're listening to my conversation with Qualcomm CEO, Steve Mollenkoff. Up next, we discuss Qualcomm's IP showdown with Apple and why Malenkoff wouldn't call it bitter. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 
a company that touches the lives of billions of people. You've been in most iPhones, for example, up to this point. Right. Um, and yet a lot of people don't even know what Qualcomm is. Does that bother you? No. I think, I think it's actually, again, it's, I think it's part of our uh, success. Our job is to make the technology available to people. We purposely stay behind their brand because what we want to do is be a great partner to enable them to be successful, and we don't pick favorites. So let's talk about Apple. For a long time, this was your biggest customer, and now they're your biggest nemesis. How would you describe your relationship status with Apple today? We have a dispute over the price of IP. Uh, we think that's moving now into a period of time where our strategy is unfolding and the, and the environment is, uh, is such that I think you're, you're in a position where a deal could get done. At the same time, uh, I think there's probably no better opportunity and partner for Qualcomm than to work with Apple. It makes sense that the technology leader in mobile should be partnered with the product leader in mobile. And it, it tends, those ten, things tend to work out. But the way that we think about the business is uh, eventually the, you get the disputes figured out and you move on into a different period. So you believe Apple will remain a customer? I think so. I mean, if you, if you look, I always believe that um, if you have leadership technology, that your roadmap will eventually um, dominate the business relationship between companies. And I think that there's no reason why that shouldn't be the case here. That said, you are taking on the world's most valuable company. They've stopped putting your chips in their phones. They say the patents that they're paying you for are invalid. How does something so bitter get resolved favorably for Qualcomm? Well, I think, I think uh, bitter is maybe the wrong term. I mean, we, we've had disputes with licensees in the past as well over the price of IP. Um, it's really no different than that here. It's just bigger companies. And remember, we're both big companies. They're obviously a very large company, but we're not a small company, really, in terms of being able to execute uh, the strategy that we have. Um, but those things will get resolved. I mean, I think uh, sometimes they get resolved on the courtroom steps. Sometimes they don't. We don't know which way it's going to go here. But the strategy is playing forward kind of the way that we always thought. That said, there are critics that say Qualcomm isn't articulating its side of the IP story well enough and that your licensing business could be dead in the water. What's your response to that? Well, I think the data is pretty different. If you look, we've got hundreds of agreements, many of them signed uh, in the last three or four years uh, when, it was, when we've had uh, a number of new agreements signed in China. The outlier are actually the people who aren't paying as opposed to the people who are paying. So we think the, the licensing business is moving toward a period of stability. Um, and, uh, you know, our job is to, is to prove that, and I think we're pretty confident in our ability to do that. So have there been any talks? There are always talks between big companies, uh, but really nothing to, to report on. So when could we expect some progress? Well, I think we've, we've always laid out this schedule that at the end of the second half of this year, uh, a number of legal milestones hit traditionally. Uh, legal milestones create an environment for both parties to sort of change their perspective. Uh, we don't know whether that's going to be the case here. Um, if it is, I'm sure there'll be lots of news for you. So how about this? What does a win look like for Qualcomm here? The normal scenario is that you, you kind of resolve the IP side and then you, you go back together and working on, a, on, on technology side. Don't know whether that's going to be the case here, but uh, that's sort of a, a typical resolution. Now, as you know, we have planned our business, assuming that that's not the case. And so for us, it, it, it looks like upside. And I think we're very confident in our ability to execute either way. You've certainly shied away from letting this get too ugly in public. Is that just part of who you are as a CEO? Is that part strategy, not wanting this to be in the spotlight? 
Well, I, first of all, it is very much what's going on. Remember, big companies have disputes all the time. They don't make it personal and they have very complicated relationships. We're, we're in that category uh, with a number of different companies. Uh, so kind of what you see is what you get there in many respects in terms of how we, how we think about it. That said, um, you were recently involved in a very uh, public situation with a CEO who does enjoy being in the spotlight, and that is Hawk Tan of Broadcom, who tried to take over Qualcomm in a hostile bid. The White House blocked it. How did you navigate that? We spent a lot of time listening to shareholders, quite frankly, and, uh, and then working through uh, how we could resolve what they, what they wanted us to resolve. One of the big issues that comes up when you're, when you're talking about a hostile takeover is, of course, deal certainty. And I think in this case, uh, it, was, it was proven that our board, um, I think we're, we're pretty smart and I think circumspect to, to take sort of a cautious view on that. And then ultimately it ended up that uh, in preparation for 5G, the, you know, the, the, the U.S. government did what it did. But I think today it'd be very difficult to be um, in any type of big merger that requires uh, approval either in the United States or in China. Just the political environment is quite difficult. And I think one of the things we were able to do is I think navigate that environment as a company and sort of remove that uncertainty away from our shareholder base. And we're pleased as to how the stock has been performing uh, after after we've done that. And of course, we've done all the things that we said we're going to do, and we're going to continue to do those things. For you as a CEO, what, what was the sort of range of emotions you went through when you found out that that was not going to happen? Was there like victory, relief? Well, I don't think you really know how to react. It's unprecedented. And there's no playbook, I mean, when, when, when something like that happens. And so you, but luckily, the law kind of tells you what you need to do here. Uh, so we did that, and then, and then we moved forward. And I think really our whole mentality now is that that's, that's behind us. Now the real focus on the company is 5G ramp and then how do we resolve the Apple uh, dispute. Now part of the reason the deal was blocked is because the administration and the president saw a national security threat. Do you think that threat is real? If you look worldwide, Qualcomm is a leader in 5G and, uh, and I think they wanted to make sure that that maintained. But quite frankly, I'm not sure anybody really understands everything that happened there. Then there was the flip side and Qualcomm tried to buy NXP, $44 billion bid. You waited two years for approval. This as trade tensions continue to escalate. The Chinese government never said no. They just let the, the deadline lapse and the deal was effectively dead. How big a blow was that? You know, it was, um, we kind of moved beyond it. I think we've been very, um, we, were, we were very clear. In fact, I was very clear in terms of what we were gonna do and it played out uh, not the way we wanted originally. But I think we moved beyond it and did the right thing as a company. Now, there's really no dramatic change, at least our evaluation, anybody's evaluation, of the M&A actionability between, you know, in, in, in China between now and probably since the end, till the end of the midterm elections in the United States, so in November timeframe. So what we decided to do was remove the uncertainty for our shareholders, remove the uncertainty for both companies and move on. And, and you know, it's, it's proven to be the right decision, at least for us. That's how the Chinese government has sort of left the door open and doesn't seem to want to take responsibility for ending the possibility of this deal happening. Do you think it could still happen? No, I mean, it, it's, it's, we have, uh, the, the merger agreement has been terminated by both sides. And so it's, it's, it's not happening. But I, but I would just remind you, I, I think it was actually handled pretty skillfully by all parties. I mean, we feel that our relationship with China is as strong as it ever was. We ne it never became about Qualcomm versus China or the other way around. What, what it really was is we had bad timing in terms of showing up in the middle of 
a large geopolitical issue. Sometimes those things happen and you have to decide um, to move on and that's what we did. Given the business that Qualcomm does around the world, do you think a trade war is good or bad for the United States? And is it good or bad for Qualcomm? Well, I would say any time that there's an issue like this, I think any industry would tell you they prefer to have it resolved. Mm -hmm. We're somewhat insulated or we don't have as much impact uh, of tariffs that other people would have. Um, but that being said, we always like to have a stable environment between the Ch China uh, and the United States, and we think we'll get to that point, and our business will be strong either way. Could the moves the president is making lead Chinese handset manufacturers to make their own chips? That's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is actually that the big trend in China is that the Chinese manufacturers want to be global players. Anytime there's a technology transition, people try to exploit that and go internationally. That brings us, that brings them closer to Qualcomm versus farther away. There's been some turnover on the board since the Broadcom saga. What is the mandate to you from the board? Drive 5G, resolve uh, the, the few remaining license disputes, and to really take advantage of this opportunity that's coming along with, the, with every, everything being connected. Um, and we've had a lot of turnover in the board, and I think moving it in a, in a direction which I think is quite healthy, and um, you know, looking forward to, uh, to driving that mandate. That was Qualcomm CEO Steve Malenkoff. Up next, we discuss yet another challenge ahead, the former CEO trying to take the company private. Will life at Qualcomm ever return to normal? I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. Takeover drama is still not over because you've got Paul Jacobs, former CEO, son of one of the founders, trying to take the company private. What's the status of that? This is somebody you worked with for years uh, that you know very well. Yep. Uh, we haven't heard anything, actually. So it's, it's, uh, it's been pretty quiet. Uh, and of course, if anybody came up with it, with, with an offer, Paul or someone else, of course, we would listen to it and give it, give it care, but we haven't, we haven't heard anything. So do you talk with him on a regular basis, or are you still engaged with him? No, he's, he's left the company, so it's, uh, we, we really don't have those type of conversations. But if, if there was a need for one, of course we would. We know each other well. Part of the argument behind going private is that the licensing business is complex. Perhaps it would be better outside of public scrutiny. You're making these long-term investments that will take some time yep. to pay off, and investors need to be patient. What do you think about that argument? Well, I, th I think it's an interesting argument. Uh, by and large, if you look at, in practice, how have we run the company, and even with a lot of scrutiny, we've always done those things. So it's not clear to me that there is an advantage one way or the other. You're kind of comparing against something that we haven't seen, so it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for me to say. So do you think being private could be equally advantageous to being public? Well, it, it, it always just depends on what the details are. Mm. I mean, if you look, uh, we're, we're a pretty large company, and in order to do that, uh, you know, that type of deal, you would take on a lot of, um, a lot of leverage. That doesn't, that doesn't open up strategic flexibility, probably constrains it. So when will we see Qualcomm returning to the sort of double-digit quarterly growth that made this company so popular with investors? Well, I think, I think um, near term, we're really focused on two trends that I think help that. One is the stabilization of the, of the Apple relationship, one way or the other, mm -hmm. and of course the growth of 5G. Both of them, we think, provide great output. What if Apple doesn't go your way? I mean, is that something that keeps you up at night? 
Of course, it's something that, that, we, that we worry about, but we tend to manage that. Worldwide, we have hundreds of agreements that actually establish the value. So we feel once we have an opportunity to get in the right forum to do that, if we have to go that far, mm -hmm. we'll be able to prevail. So let's talk about new markets and where you see Qualcomm progressing. Famously, Intel struggled for years to get into mobile and never quite figured it out. And so you can work for a long time on some of these technologies and then realize it's not going to be yep. um, something that you dominate in. Um, Qualcomm already gave up on servers, for example. What about your efforts in PCs, cars, drones? I look at all of them and I think they're pretty, pretty interesting. When I think of the business, I think of two things. I think of, are we developing technologies that have international demand and can we scale them into the markets that want them? And today, our real focus on is on the scaling. The demand is there and we're starting to see early you know, examples of new customers taking new products. I'll give me a, a sense. I think we have 9,000 new customers today that we didn't have before, and I think that's up 20x in the last four years. So what does Qualcomm look like in 2020? Well, I think you're gonna see a lot, of, a lot of 5G. You're gonna see more focus on the areas outside of mobile, but I'll be honest with you, I think, I think you're gonna see a tremendous amount of excitement in the mobile space just from the launch of 5G. It is very disruptive in terms of the business models of carriers, how much bandwidth they get, and their ability to move it forward. It's gonna be an exciting time, we think. Will Qualcomm still be an independent company? Well, I think it's uh, too, too far in the future. I think what, what, what is very clear is that um, any way we can drive value, we'll, we'll look at it, but we have a, you know, a great position to be in from a technology perspective, for sure. When do you think business is going to return to normal for Qualcomm, for you? You know, I don't think it ever returns to normal. If I look back at the 24 years of being in the company, we've never really had a super stable spot. Mm -hmm. There were always times when people said Qualcomm was gonna to disappear tomorrow. You'll never be good at this technology, never be good at that technology. I had the fortunate opportunity to work on a lot of those projects that actually proved those things wrong, meaning that we were able to do all the things that people said. So I, I don't know if, um, if we're ever gonna be in a super stable position, but we're certainly gonna be in more stable position than we've been over the last several years. So what is something you know now today as a CEO in 2018 that you didn't know when you took this job four years ago? What is something that you've learned? You've always got to um, figure out what you wanna do, make sure that you spend the time on it, because if you don't spend time on it, it's not gonna get done, um, which is a very basic thing. It's hard to do in practice. Don't you have your people to do those things? <laughs> but what happens is, particularly if you grew up in the organization, it's very easy to do things that, um, the organization will let you do, will work on whatever it is you wanna work on. You just have to make sure that you're working on those things that only you can work on. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that over the last, let's say, four years, and it's certainly true when you go through a period of tremendous scrutiny or big changes, there are certain things just by the nature of the org structure, the CEO has to make this call or have conviction on this particular topic. You know, I've learned that, you know, you've got to, you've got to set time aside to make sure you know where you are on it. What is your game plan as, as a CEO and a manager over the next few years, knowing you've got a lot more uncertainty coming your way and that you have to be nimble as a CEO? Well, I think the first thing we do is we just acknowledge that there's always going to be uncertainty in the business. And so for us, the way that we mitigate that is make sure that you have technology that people want. And uh, if you have that, you can kind of solve everything else. So first and foremost, that's, that's what we do.
And we've, by the way, we've had to make those calls. For example, the big call for 5G we made several years ago in the middle of all of this, you know, um, uncertainty. This will not be the last call that we have to make. I mean, the, the technology roadmap will continue. We've got to make sure that we're the leaders um, moving forward, and, and we'll continue to do that. That actually is the fun part of the business, and, uh, you know, we're looking forward to it. Steve Molenkoff, CEO of Qualcomm, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you here on the show. In the middle of all you got going on, I appreciate it. Thank you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. This episode was produced by Edward Ludlow. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.